Hello, everyone. Welcome to another episode of the Unauthorized Disclosure Podcast. I'm your host, Kevin Bastola, and I'm joined by the show's other host, Rania Kalik. Hello, Rania. Hey, Kevin. And this week, we have uh, an organizer from Chicago. Uh, she's with the grassroots organization We Charge Genocide. She's been a guest on this show before, and her name is Hey, Welcome to the show. Hi. Thanks for having me again. A big development, and there's also uh, a controversy or, or some issues that need to be addressed in Chicago with the American Civil Liberties Union of Illinois. This chapter uh, negotiated a settlement related to stop and frisks in Chicago and uh, came to an agreement with the Chicago Police Department and the city of Chicago decided to go this route instead of a lawsuit. And uh, your organization and other grassroots organization in Chicago were not part of this process and uh, have been protesting and calling this to uh, calling attention to this. So can you talk about uh, just this agreement and the issue with the ACLU? Yeah. So to really understand what's going on now, we have to go back a little bit to a few months ago. Uh, really, we have to go back to last August, a year ago, um, when we, we Charge Genocide had just gotten started. There were many people you know, who had been talking about stop and frisk and wanting to organize around stop and frisk and doing the work of organizing against stop and frisk for a while in Chicago. So we don't mean to imply that we're the first, right? So we specifically got started. And when we had a hearing with young people in August, one of the main things that we were hearing consistently from young people was that police violence looks like you walk outside, you get stopped, and you get harassed. And that really stuck with us. Um, and in the report that we submitted to the United Nations, there's a whole section called harassment and abuse, which is really about stop and frisk and how little data is being kept on this problem that we have plenty of anecdotal evidence to suggest that it really is a crisis. And, you know, I've talked about the, the delegation to the United Nations and how successful that was. I also have talked about what we did immediately after around reparations. But all the while, we've been sort of gearing up for this campaign, knowing that it was something that we were going to want to take on. And um, we... Met, we drafted up the Stop Act, much to the work of Charlene Grace and Joey Mogul. Um, and I really started working with Malcolm London to develop something called Shy Stops, which was this youth-centered uh, education and organizing effort led by young black people, young black and brown people, um, to really go out, talk to young folk, and be like, hey, just so you know, we're working on this, and we know that this most affects you. So we would love to hear what you think, what your experience with Stop and Frisk are, and we'd like to invite you to join us in this movement. So we started doing that um, in the spring, and we've been doing those presentations for months. And at the same time, we first off, we met with ACLU and let them know that we were working on this, because we knew that this was something they were interested interested in based off of the report that they had released after we already decided and launched our campaign that really showed uh, the initial sweep of data that we do have access to showing that what we have in Chicago is four times as bad as New York City. At this meeting, we explained our intentions to file our ordinance that it was a city-based thing, that we firmly believe that how we won mattered and that we were focused on movement building and centering young black and brown people. And they shared with us their intentions to to say at the state level, they actually, at my experience, I thought it was really patronizing, especially there was a, a older white lawyer man who just like repeatedly cut me off and would repeat what I was already saying. It was extremely frustrating um, and kind of implied like we didn't know what we were doing by taking on a city ordinance that it, it didn't make sense because you need rum on board, which we knew. We knew all of this. But they said, you know, that they supported what we were doing, that, you know, we, we would stay open. We recognized we were going to have different strategies. Strategies, um, but that we were going to work together to support each other's efforts. And, um, and we stayed in touch with them. We let them know. We sent them an email letting them know that the date we were filing, that we were having this big press conference, all this stuff. They even sent us edits for our ordinance, so they knew what was in it. Um, and so all that happened, and we were doing the work, doing the work, doing the work, and some weird stuff starts to happen. The first is that we had... Sort of separate from this, me and some other young black leaders in the city had a chance to meet with Rahm Emanuel, 
Um, and he heard, we talked about the STOP Act at this meeting. He was very interested in it, and he asked for it to see it. Shortly after, we were followed up by uh, Janie Roundtree, the Director of Public Safety, um, who wanted to meet with us to talk about the STOP Act. An hour before that meeting, it was canceled. Um, and we knew that that was a bad sign, that something was going on that was fishy. Um, and then the day of our press conference, you know, we do this big, it's packed. We get our hashtag trending in Chicago. There's like, oh, like hundreds of people at City Hall for this. Um, we have all these young black people getting up, sharing their stories and saying, we are filing this ordinance and here's why we think this is important. We get a call. Um, at our, at one of our aldermen, Alderman Soil, gets a call from the mayor's office after the press conference asking for him to please delay filing the stop back for four days because there's some negotiations going on with ACLU. We also get an email from ACLU saying, we didn't realize you were filing. If you had told us, like, maybe we would have told you about this thing that we've got going on. So then we realize that something very big is happening behind the scenes. We get another call getting the sense that there's some kind of settlement that very much affects the STOP Act and its ability to move forward. So we request a meeting with ACLU. Um, we finally sit down with them, and I'm, I'm already angry. I'm not going to lie. Like, and they, I was very open with my anger. I don't think it makes sense to like play the politically correct game and like pretend that I'm not mad if for some PR purpose. Um, and we said, you know, tell us. We want to know what's going on. And we want. And from what little we know, we already know that the, that we have two problems. One is that what you've done has really undercut the efforts of the young black people who have been leading shy stops in their ability to get a much more um, holistic reform package passed through City Hall. Second, you know, we are concerned about credit. Whether or not it's for we charge genocide of the Black Lives Matter movement on the whole, we, we think it's absurdly disrespectful that you're going to, like, use this and get a ton more money from your fundraisers when you're already this huge elitist nonprofit, right? Um, so, and that at that time, they kind of filled us in on what the deal was. Um, so I'll pause there for a second <laughs> and see if that long story made sense. Um, and then I'm happy to explain what the settlement actually is. So the, the, let's get to the settlement. Uh, but first, I just want to say that people should recognize that your community of activists was directly responsible for passing the reparations ordinance for police torture victims, people who were tortured by Commander John Burge. And I would imagine that you would follow a similar model in pursuing some sort of city council ordinance around stop and frisks. Exactly. I mean, so we were part, we were one part of um, that fight that lasted, you know, decades. Mm -hmm. um, but we definitely, I mean, we, we see like that final six months of it was really something that was led by folks in, um, uh, led by a coalition that included a lot of We Charge Genocide folks, right? Who, and so we learned a big part of why we fought so hard for that. Miriam Cabo would always say, we need to know how to win, right? We need to win this so that we know how to win. And so we learned a lot in that experience and how to pass things through the city, city council. And we were building on that with the STOP Act. And I think that to be very honest, and I'll talk more about this, right? I think it was the fact that we're smart, that we're getting smarter and better at these things, um, that we're radical and that we're powerful, right? Like we, like the, that we're at a point where the city is having to negotiate with us, and we're a bunch of like young black folk that the city likes to pretend don't exist or don't matter at usually. So I think it's it's actually has a lot to do with the fact that yeah, we're we're we're. A, powerful group of people and we're a powerful group particularly of young black people um and and that i think has a lot to do with why this all went down the way that it did do you also i mean do you also wonder i mean maybe this is going on what you're saying too um if it's not just about the tactical stuff and then like the sort of like you all have power um but about the end goal um because it seems like y'all are are more like invested in a in radical change um, whereas perhaps, you know, and I like the ACLU for the most part, but is, you know, more invested in reform. Right. I mean, I think, again, there's two problems. One is like, um, yeah, what, what is the ACLU's end goal versus ours? I suspect they're pretty different, but I, for me, right, like my people are, are dying. My people are experienced anti-blackness on every single level of their lives, right? That is the problem. Um, in order to change that, in order to get free, we have to have a shift and transformation of power relations mm -hmm. that the pro we are not 
dying because there aren't enough laws on the books. We aren't dying because we don't have enough data <laughs> on the books, right? Like we're dying because the world is racist, right? <laughs> um, and that the only way we can change that is if we redistribute power away from a racist state and the racist police and back into our communities, right? So how we get things like legislation and new policies passed has everything to do with how we, with, with, with shifting power, right? How we win matters because that's that how we win is actually how we get free. And that's the problem here is that we knew that that's like from, if you talk to any young black person in Chicago, you will find out that stop and frisk is a problem, right? Um, that but people don't listen to young black people, right? And so what we did is we were like, okay, we talked to young black people, we heard it was a problem and we learned a few ways that we might be able to um, to address some of the immediate harm that was going on with stop and frisk, recognizing that ultimately we are going to need data, though, in order to prove it to a wider audience, because the wider audience is racist and won't listen to these young black people. So we needed data, and we did as much as possible want to address some of the immediate harm that young black people, young black and brown people are experiencing every day. So that was the, the impetus for the STOP Act. It was sort of a first step in a much longer campaign to really redistribute power, right? Mm -hmm. And question the role of stop and frisk and actually even keeping us safe, right? Is it a useful tactic? Um, I have my reasons to believe it's not. I think it's actually a very successful tactic in doing something other than keeping people safe. Um, anyways, but that's I actually my... have a quick question about that. Um, yeah. You know, because I mean, obviously you all are focused on police issues, right? Mm -hmm. um, which is obviously like a huge, you know, high priority. Um, but, um, you know, when it comes to you just mentioned like the reasons for stop and frisk, obviously, you know, racism is very much embedded in that. Um, but is there I mean, do you, do you all talk about or try or, or are there like is there any coalition building happening around the sort of economics behind that um, in terms of like I would imagine that stop and frisk like the way it works in New York you know, functions as a way to sort of um, facilitate neoliberal like gentrification, um, which is, you know, very racist policies that are, you know, push poor black people out. Um, so is that does that like factor into to like the way that you all organize and, and what you're organizing around? Right. That So, yes, absolutely. Um you know, like for me, it's always a question, and we talk about this, like in the presentation that we've been in the workshop we've been um, doing for for young folk throughout the summer. You know, we we kind of lay out what we know, right, and we we check in a lot on like how this matches with folks' experiences. We you know we open it up for more conversation, and then we kind of pause for a second. We say, so why do you think this is happening, right? Um, and and young people, and I've I presented to some people as young as fifth graders, like they understand that it's because we're black, right? It's not it's it's not for any other reason than the fact that we're black, um, and that that anti-blackness um, that allows for us to be punished for just being black and living in the world is something that actually is much deeper than just the police, right? The police are the arm of the state. The police are the gun of white supremacy, but there, it is, that's why I get so frustrated with the bad apples argument, because not only is this just about, not about individual cops, it's not even just about the cops. Who calls the police? Mm -hmm. Who calls the police on young people, right? We do. Who, who lets young people get stopped and searched and harassed? It is a very, very violent process if you ever sit and watch it. And people walk by like there's like nothing is happening. Like all like it's just like a normal part of the landscape, right? And that is as much a part of the problem. And so that's why we charge genocide. And the folks that I organize with and are, are building deep, deep co coalition and solidarity with are trying to address to frame stop and frisk as part of a larger problem within white supremacy that overlaps with things like gentrification, that overlaps like things like public education crises, right? That as much as it has to do with, with police violence, that really what we're talking about is state violence, white supremacy, and anti-blackness. So for listeners who have no idea what's in this agreement, uh, yeah. <laughs> I want to make sure that we get to it before we wrap our interview. And, uh, so, so a few things that I want to make sure we touch upon. One is this really odd way of framing it so that they are going to ensure that they are not violating the um, Illinois Civil Rights Act, which is supposed to supposedly protect against disproportionate targeting of specific races. Uh, and then also 
that they're going to somehow be looking at how this is violating a right that everyone has, which is to not be subjected to unreasonable searches and seizures under the Fourth Amendment. And I'm a little confused, uh, and maybe you want to address this, page because it seems like it lets the CPD off the hook for all past conduct and says that we're just going to start clean and we're going to look at this record going forward on how you approach stop and frisks. Yeah, I mean, that's my impression. Yeah, that's where I always get interested in this conversation around, you know, what does justice look like and how what that means under like a reparations framework. Um, Yeah, I mean, I don't I think that the ACLU is sort of just like, okay, we know there's a problem. We need data to prove that there's a problem and then we'll go from there. Right. And that's a that's a part of like our strategy as well. Like we know we need data. Right. And that it's sort of a first step. I don't think ACLU is ever going to like turn like once we're able to prove that it's a problem with the data that there's going to be this effort to like be like, okay, so all those people who have experienced all this violence, right, What? how are we going to address that? And if you remember with the Burge, this is, like, again, super interesting. If you remember with the Burge reparations ordinance, one of the things that um, was demanded was uh, a, mental he- uh, uh, a mental health center be established on the south side that would provide free counseling for any survivor of police violence and their family members. Now, this this was all, you know, gaining some, a lot of momentum right after this. Our, our delegation of young black and brown people went to the U.N. saying that what the CPD does to the young people on a daily basis is torture, right, including things like stop and frisk, including things like mass incarceration. So the city, that was one of the things they really pushed back on and, and insisted on some kind of compromise um, where they weakened that language so that it could only only be survivors of bridge torture that are allowed to have access to this mental health care service. And I think that has a lot to do with how the city is afraid of what it would mean if we were to open up um, survivor, open up uh, some kind of, of retroactive justice, right, and reparations for survivors of police violence. Because what does that mean if you include something like stop and frisk, right? That's like every black and brown person almost that's ever lived in this city. Uh, and that's something that, like, I think that's what's beautiful about reparations is, is if you really push through it and get to a place where people take it seriously, it becomes a question. Like, there, there, there's no amount of money that's ever going to fix this, right? And it re- will ultimately require a complete restructuring of society. And that's why that's such a hard, that's such an important road to go down is because it's really how we start to show the structures of racism and oppression, right? And what it will mean to, to tear down and build up new structures. Um, so that's, I don't know if that actually even gets at your question, but I, that's what I think about when I hear this. I'm not surprised the ACLU doesn't is. Yeah. I don't expect the ACLU to like hold all these officers accountable for anything that has happened since, you know, moving in the past. Um, you know, even with the settlement, like this person that they found that they, they were threatening to sue the city with they, in their agreement. Now they can't sue. Right. So I'm assuming this person, basically they just got their story. Right. And like, they, their story got used to pressure the city, and I, I don't know. I don't think they got any money or anything. They, it just feels to me very exploitative. But ACLU is going to get a ton of grant money because of this. That's for sure. That is scandalous. So yeah. uh, the other thing that's important, and I wanted to run this by you because this is something that you're bringing attention to through your organization, which is that this magistrate and the ACLU are going to be going through this confidential process of looking over this data There are going to be apparently a couple public reports by the judge, uh, but this is going to be the judge's own analysis of the data. We're not going to see the raw data. And if we want the data, it's going to have to be gotten through the Illinois State Freedom of Information Act. Now, um, I'll read you the response I got from the ACLU about this issue. Um, It was, given the attention being paid to this issue, not only by the ACLU, but by other groups, we fully expect the data to become public. It's important to remember that the data in the ACLU of Illinois' March 2015 report, this is the stop and frisk report that led to a lot of this, was obtained through Freedom of Information Act. And so that's that's their stance on this really uh, significant issue of whether we're going to see this data. Yeah, I, so this is similar to what they put out in their statement yesterday. I, they're just 
whatever. Like, I'm so over them. But, FOIA, I don't know how to FOIA, right? Like, who the, who the hell knows how to do a FOIA request? Even lawyers that I know, it's like a hard, confusing process. And to, for, to like, for, to sit in a room with a bunch of young black people who are clearly angry, and you're sitting there telling them that our anger is righteous, that you understand why we're frustrated, right? And then to turn around and say, but y'all will be able to FOIA? Like, who the hell do you, like, what are you talking about? That's so insulting. Anyway, like, so... It's again like if you think that we're gonna trust the courts, if you think that we're gonna trust the CPD to like release this data on its own accord, you're clearly missing. Like you're you're either ignorant or you're, you're like my enemy. Like you're you're not listening. As the main point, though, we need the data to be public. It shouldn't be a big deal. The CPD is constantly saying that they're one of the most transparent de departments in the country. So like put the information online every three months so that everyone who has access to a computer can see it. Sorry, that's my cat. I don't like no one should have to FOIA or trust that the courts are going to deliver this information. That is an absurd request to make of black people of anyone. Right. Um, so that's my response to that. Uh, no, <laughs> I well said. That that's very well said. And then I'm, I, I wish you could I'm just like, what? Why? Just be, stay quiet, ACLU. Like, stop talking. What is going on? <laughs> well, I did ask them to answer that question, so I apologize for setting you off. No, 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 no. no. But, no it's, it's good that you asked. It is good that you asked. But, just, like, um, yeah. but I think what's more critical, and, and this I'll make this my final question, and then, Rania, if you have anything else to, uh, to add... There's a huge difference here between what happened in New York and Chicago, and it's significant given that the ACLU told all of us that CPD has a bigger problem with stop and frisks than New York did when it was being intensely used in 2011. Uh, and so they didn't. Th there was a lawsuit in New York City, and, and that seemed to produce some pretty good outcomes. And I just wonder what your reaction is to not having a lawsuit filed here in the city. Right. So New York was a little bit different because we, we studied New York. Right. And I'm and I'm still in conversation with folks who are a part of that work. Um, and I've seen the effects to really try to understand, like, how they were successful and what were the limits of the success that they saw so that we can hopefully make it fa happen faster and have, you know, the same results, if not better. Um, and support each other, for sure, right? Um, so when, when New York City sued, they were suing for access to the data, right? Because at that point, New York City's police were keeping track of stops and frisks, but people didn't have access to it. They had to fucking sue the city to get access. So for ACLU to say, well, now they're at least tracking it, that, that put that, it took New York over 10 years from suing the city start to having success with the larger movement, right? To getting access to the data, right? So we know that access, public access to the data is critical. If we learn anything at all from New York, we know we have to see, be able to see the data. And that's not what ACLU just did. They, they put us pre-New York City movement, right? They put us to, like, what New York City was doing before the epic movement that people now are always talking about, right? Where, yeah, New York City was collecting that information for years. But they weren't sharing it. They had to sue. So that's apparently what, like, we're going to have to do. Like, I, no, we, so that's why with the STOP Act, we wanted it to immediately be made public. That has to be the, one of the first things. When we start collecting it, we also publish it. If, if, you, if there's nothing wrong with it, then what are they hiding? Like, what, what is the big deal? If it's really the successful tactic that keeps guns and drugs off the street, then show it with the numbers. Prove it. Uh, thank you for taking the time to talk to us. Uh, we really appreciate your insights. Absolutely. Thank you for having me. Hello, everyone. Welcome to the discussion portion of the Unauthorized Disclosure Podcast. I'm here with Rania Kalik. Hello, Rania. Hey, Kevin. How are you? And we were going to start our discussion by talking about a story you did for the Electronic Intifada on uh, the skunk weapon that Israel Yeah, has. so there's been a new development. Um, I don't know if we've mentioned it on the show before, but there's this disgusting 
weapon that Israel created, Israel invented um, back in 2008. It's a, um, it's a like water type substance that's called skunk. Um, and it basically is like this, this, this crowd dispersant, um, that the Israeli, um, forces will spray into, uh, crowds of Palestinian protesters routinely in the West Bank and East Jerusalem. Um, and also like, as like a way to get them to disperse, um, and also will like, uh, just like use it as a form of collective punishment and like in villages that, that, um, that you know engage in protest against Israel's occupation. We'll just go into those villages and spray homes and schools and private businesses with this stuff. Um, so what is skunk? It's like I said, it's like this crowd control um, liquid, um, and it basically like emits this really awful odor um, that has been described by people who've experienced it as like a cross between rotting animal corpses raw sewage and human feces. Um, and so this odor that it emits ends up sticking to everything. It sticks to walls, clothing, your hair, your skin. And it does, like, it stays there. You can shower all you want, but this, the odor stays there. The stench stays there for days, sometimes even weeks, and just, like, is impossible to wash away without the special soap that, um, you know, only police have access to. Uh, so yeah, it's like a really, really disgusting, it doesn't, and of course, Israel, the Iskria was developed by the Israeli police in collaboration with this Israeli, um, company called Odor Tech, which is this, uh, the subsidiary of this insect repellent company. Um, and they, you know, in advertising it, they say it's like totally environmentally friendly and you can even drink it. It's so, it's like, it's totally non-toxic, but of course, like, um, it has been reported to cause like pain and redness if it comes into contact with the eyes and, you know, irritation of the skin. And if it, you swallow it, it can cause, um, you know, abdominal pain um, and even require medical treatment. So it's not exactly non-toxic, but the point is, is like no one's dying from it, right? So does it have pesticides in it? No, I mean, it's, it's um, no, not, pe- it was created by like, basically by a pesticide company or by like an insect repellent company. But the insect repellent company is like an environmentally friendly company that like, you know, um, so yeah, it doesn't have actual insect pesticides and in I don't know. I'm not sure exactly what the ingredients are, but, um, but either way, it's just got, the smell is horrible. Okay. Um, and there's actually like, this is something that the U S army or U S military has been trying to create too for a while. They call them malodorants. M- so basically like a less, like what they call less lethal weapons, a less lethal weapon that it's like a, that, that creates a stink. So people disperse. Right. Um, and there's also the idea of, of, of specifically targeting particular individuals with it so that you can arrest them later by their smell, which is really stupid. But, um, so they've been using this in, in Palestinian towns and villages for since 2008 and it's been completely, it's been tested. I mean, the, I talk a lot on, on the show about how Israel tests its weapons on Palestinians. Um, and so this, this particular weapon, the skunk water is advertised as having been field tested, um, and it, that means that it's been tested on Palestinians. And I mean, even the the Israeli police um, official uh, back in 2008, who was like in charge, uh, told like told media outlets like, yeah, we we, we tested it in in this in these particular villages, um, and it was like an experiment. So like, yeah, they they're totally open about like we experimented on these people with our new weapon to make sure it doesn't kill anyone and to see what the effects are and if it actually works. So basically, um, this company Odor Tech has been, um, and the Israeli police have been at, like trying to market this product to law enforcement around the world since they released it. And thus far, only Palestinians have been, um, have been sprayed with the substance, but that is going to probably change soon because as it turns out, um, the St. Louis Police Department, St. Louis Metropolitan Police Department purchased skunk uh, from, or purchased skunk back in uh, November. So, like, a few months after the, the up Ferguson uprising um, began. Uh, and they, like, stopped. They're, they've been stockpiling it. They have not used it yet. But, you know, you, you've been in St. Louis before, and I've been in St. Louis before, Kevin, and seen the police up close, especially the St. Louis Metropolitan Police Department. And they are, I mean, they have no problem spraying people with mace and pepper spray. 
So, I mean, it does, it's not too far-fetched to think that they would end up be ultimately using this new weapon they have in their arsenal on protesters. Um, and it's not just the St. Louis Police Department. And this was, by the way, it was confirmed by a news outlet called Defense One. They obtained these... Um, they obtained the purchase order through uh, by by filing a, a, a by, by like a asking for it through Missouri's open records law, um, but you know there's also been um, apparently police officers or police departments around the country since the Ferguson um, uprising and then what happened in Baltimore have been increasingly interested in procuring skunk and some of them we don't know which ones exactly have been stockpiling it from this Bethesda Maryland based company. So that's something to think about. Um, you know, the U.S. police departments are very close um, with the Israeli security apparatus. Um, I've talked on the show about how they often go, almost every single U.S. police department has traveled to Israel at some point or sent their senior commanders to Israel to learn um, lessons in, I guess, like how to occupy, um, how to deal with crowd control, um, all these things. How to how to do border, you know, how to um, how to secure borders, quote unquote. So when they go there, you know, it's like an added benefit for these Israeli companies because then they get to market their products directly to these police executives. Um, and the St. Louis Metropolitan Police Department has sent executives to to Israel before. So, I mean, it's something to think about: is this um, this this really grotesque arrangement of things being tested in Palestine? And then being shipped off to other parts of the world to be used um, against other people who are engaged in, you know, liberation struggles or what, you know, or, or protesting against the status quo or whatever the case may be. Um, and so, um, on that note, there is something I did want to mention: is I realized, Kevin, that we never talked on the show um, about what happened last month, uh, and we don't have to go too deeply into it. Um, but last month, in in um, in Israel, there was, or in Jerusalem, I should say, there was like, um, there was a, a gay rights festival, and it was attacked by like a, a radical um, or an extremist uh, Orthodox Jew who had like just been released from prison for attacking a gay a gay pride parade ten years earlier. Um, this man stabbed several people and ended up killing a sixteen year old girl, um, and that happened. And then a few hours later, that night. Um, less than less than 24 hours later, a Jewish settler, a, a gang of Jewish settlers, um, went into a Palestinian village called Duma in the occupied West Bank, and they um, they basically like like poured lighter fluid or flammable liquid um, they into into these homes into two homes and they lit them on fire, and one of the homes had had an entire family in it. Um, and everybody was severely, severely burned. Uh, the, there was a, a mother, a father, and a baby um, who was like a little over a year, and a four-year-old boy. Um, and the father and the child, the one-year-old died. The one-year-old was burned alive in the house. Nobody was able to save him. His name was Ali Jawabsha. Um, the father died days later. The mother is still um, in her, you know, in a hospital bed with like uh, burns on 80% of her body, which is, you know, that's not good. That's not an easy thing to survive. And the four-year-old, I think, is doing slightly better, but is still in like it's still sixty percent of his body is burned. Um, so I mean, it's like you know, there's we're just kind of waiting. But the point is, is that, that like Jewish extremism in Israel has been a hot topic since these things took place. It's not new, but it's been a hot topic that everybody's talking about now in the media and stuff. Um, and so I thought that I would just note these two stories really quickly um, that kind of speak to that because we didn't really talk about it on the show. And one of them is, um, so the, the, this, um, this Israeli lawmaker, um, his name is Bezalel Shmotrich. I'm probably not saying that right. Um, but he is a new lawmaker with the like proto-fascist Jewish home party in Israel. And uh, he recently commented that, um, he said that he's, he claims the gays control the media. Um, and that's why people like him aren't allowed to have a normal, quote unquote, normal people like him aren't allowed to state their opinions in the media. Um, and after this, the 16 year old girl was killed, he like he like went online and I think and said something along the lines of like that parade was an abomination parade. Um, so I just want to like it's like the reason I'm even saying this is because there's a lot of incitement in Israel right now from Israeli leaders. And that's why this stuff is happening. It's because you've got Israeli leaders that are inciting against um, minority populations, particularly it's usually Palestinians and Arabs, 
um, and, uh, and also it's usually like African asylum seekers that they're doing this against, but it's also LGBTQ people. And I just wanted to note that because Israel's often portrayed as this like paradise for gays, and it's really not. <laughs> um, in fact, the people who are in charge of Israel's governing coalition, the, the, gover like the governing coalition that, that is in charge in Israel, that it was elected to office, the Netanyahu put together, um, is very, very homophobic. And they're constantly saying like super homophobic things in the media, like calling gay people you know, uh, like abnormal people. Um, so like they're inciting this stuff. Um, and then there's also one more thing I wanted to note is with regard to the Iran deal, um, we don't have to go into the, the Iran deal. Like we're not going to talk about that, but um, just to speak to like how, um, how much this incitement affects Israeli Jewish society. Um, so the uh, U.S. ambassador, U.S. ambassador to Israel, Dan Shapiro, has been receiving death threats, like letters, death threats to the U.S. Embassy in Tel Aviv addressed to him, um, basically threatening to kill him because of the U.S.-Iran deal. <laughs> um, and he's also got all these Facebook posts likening him to a Jewish Nazi concentration camp guard, calling him a capo because Dan Shapiro is Jewish. Um, but yeah, this is what's happening in Israel right now. I mean, just completely off the deep end. Like, the incitement, I mean, it's, like, to a point where, especially, like, with the way Netanyahu's talking about the U.S. in regard to the Iran deal and against Obama and stuff, um, it's, like, I'm surprised Netanyahu isn't calling for America to be bombed at this point because he might as well be. Like, he's just completely inciting. And this is, the, um, this is like, the outcome of that is people who are constantly listening to their leader talk about how they're under existential threat and the U.S. is, is literally, like, feeding them to the Iranians are now issuing death threats anti-semitic death threats against our jewish ambassador to israel well, so marching them to the ovens right i mean jesus christ like you know i mean these people like will say things like hitler didn't get like hitler should have finished the job like you from his from jewish israelis <laughs> to like it, it's very disturbing and i think a lot of it is a lot of it's because of this fascist tendency to like hate leftists and view anyone who isn't like prepared to bomb Iran as a leftist, and there's a, a particular, a particularly like virulent hatred of leftist Jews. Um, like they, they are like a even if they're not. I mean, Dan Shapiro, the U.S. ambassador to Israel, is not a leftist Jew. I wouldn't call him a leftist. You know, um, you know, he's a he's an ambassador for the Obama administration. But I mean, anybody who is not hardline at this point is considered leftist, and so that's the rallying cry of fascists. Right? Is like. It's like leftist, you know, down with the leftists. Um, in addition to all the racism and like um, and like subservience to the state that goes along with that. But anyways, that's my roundup. Oh, and then I guess look, we should be segueing now into. Um, We're going to talk I'm, about I'll hunger strikes. It segues perfectly into your story. Is there is uh, a pal a group, there's Palestinians are on a hunger strike right now. Palestinian prisoners who are in administrative detention, which is basically the like indefinite detention. Um, Israel typically holds like hundreds of Palestinians in indefinite detention at a given time. Um, and, uh, sometimes for months, sometimes for years. Um, it's like, basically very similar to Guantanamo in that no, no charge or trial, um, has been put forward. And, you know, the only way that people have to protest this is like what the only, the only method of protest prisoners really have. One of the only methods is hunger strikes, right? So there's been on and off Palestinian hunger strikes, and right now there's Palestinians hunger striking. And one of them, Mohammed Allen, is um, he lost consciousness and is in a coma after 59 days of hunger striking. Now there's a difference between Israel and what we see at Guantanamo, and that is that Israel does not um, has not been force feeding people. However, it did pass a law recently to do just that. Um, is it is actively seeking out doctors who are willing to do that to force feed people. Um, but, uh, yeah, it's, it's very, like, I'm really disturbed by how hard it is to get people interested in stories about hunger strikes, because it, it, even me sometimes, like, we become desensitized to it, but, like, it's really bad. Like, when people, this is, like, the one thing people can do is not eat. That's the one form of protest they still have. Um, and you've got states like Israel and, like, the United States classifying that as, like, a, as, like, almost like a terrorist act. Um, that needs to be like treated and punished. Um, and so Kevin, I guess like you have another story about a hunger striker at Guantanamo. So why don't you go into that? Yeah. Uh, and to tie it to what you're saying, my understanding was that force feeding law that was passed was inspired by Guantanamo Bay. 
Yeah, that, it was. That Netanyahu has been openly talking about if the Americans can do it, then we should be able to do it to Indeed, he's been, he's been saying that since last summer, and that's been, like, the argument. So that speaks to the sort of symbiotic relationship between the U.S. and Israel sort of, um, you know, going engaging in, in violations of international law, but, like, also egging each other on and giving each other the the reasoning for it. But anyways. So broadly speaking, what you say is true, which is to say that the Pentagon has this position that any— prisoner engaged in hunger strike is engaged in a or is using a terrorist tactic that is has been advised by al-qaeda uh <laughs> so in 2012 in january rear admiral david woods was the joint task force guantanamo commander and one of the things he told a task force that was uh, investigating uh, how things were handled at uh, the prison, particularly how medical professionals were handling prisoners. He told them that hunger strikes were a tool used by detainees to stay in the fight and said that we consider anyone undertaking hunger strikes to be continuing the fight against the U.S. government. So their their position, the Pentagon in this, is that prisoners who are hunger striking are... You know, doing this as a battle cry sort of thing, and if you reward it uh, by releasing them because they're on hunger strike and gravely ill, then you're incentivizing prisoners in Guantanamo to not eat. Now, the name of this person who is uh, weighs about 75 pounds now, he's a Yemeni prisoner and resident of Saudi Arabia, his name's Tarek Ba'oda, he has been held in solitary conditions for 13 years he was cleared by obama's uh now well-known review task force uh in 2009 he's not charged with any crime whatsoever he's gone through multiple years of forced feedings his body can barely handle those anymore and he's had three doctors look at him so that he could put this uh habeas corpus petition uh he submitted this uh, push in the U.S. courts. It's backed by. Uh, it's being brought by his lawyer with the Center for Constitutional Rights, and was filed in June. And the basic argument is just that. It's a law of war argument that there's an obligation for the United States government to release people who are seriously wounded and sick. And uh, this actually happened with one Sudanese prisoner uh, like a year or two ago, and the Obama administration let it let it go. But in this case. Because Oda has been hunger striking for about eight years, eight years, yeah, and he's uh, seen as uh, a threat because if they release him, then they're going to be sending a message to other people that they can hunger strike. That's the Obama administration's argument. So they filed this thing in secret, Rania. None of us get to know exactly what arguments they're making against releasing this man who is gravely ill, whose organs will probably fail or he's got neuropsychological damage. Even if he is released from Guantanamo, he's probably not going to live much longer. He weighs like 56% of a person's normal body weight at his age. Um, and uh, so it's outrageous. And the administration can't even bring itself to openly make these arguments because they know they're indefensible. So they file them in a court under seal so that uh, his lawyers, Oda's lawyers, can't rebut them in on you know on social media or in the news or in any public forum. Yeah, well. And uh, the other thing was that uh, just just to show that that this isn't a thing that is military. This is how it's being handled in Illinois in. Uh, prisons there uh, right it's not isolated um to like guantanamo or yeah our, right. our uh our friend raven rakia did uh a story for al jazeera america that people uh, i encouraged to go read um it's about a lawsuit that was filed a class action lawsuit in illinois against solitary confinement being used it says it's cruel and unusual punishment and one of the things that it highlights is how solitary is used against hunger strikers or, you know, 
anybody who engages in work stoppages. These are forms of protest that prisoners can use to improve their conditions. And what happens is, in these facilities, anybody who does this is seen as a quote-unquote dangerous disturbance, and they face this retaliation of being punished and put into solitary confinement. I mean, it just speaks to, like, again... um you know, how these aren't policies that are isolated to, like, what happens over there, even in Guantanamo or with foreign policy. This is very much something that takes place in our own prisons here. Um, And, you know, hunger strikes, like, I mean, the punishment of people doing hunger strikes, like, it's like they're, these people literally have, of anybody who has no power in society, I think prisoners might be the least, like, literally prisoners have zero power. Like, zero power. And so, the, like, the one thing they can do, the one thing they can do is not eat. And that is not, like, an easy thing to decide. Like, I don't know if you've ever, like, missed a meal. Like, I lose my mind. So, if you can imagine the desperate circumstances people are dealing with when they're willing to just stop eating food. Um, to make, to, like, as, as a form of protest. And to see how, like, it just makes me so sad because it's, like, these stories, like, it, these prisoners are, are just, like, they're, they're not eating because, like, they're protesting their conditions, and, like, no one really knows. <laughs> and people yeah. that do know, it's just, like, I guess, I don't know if it's not a sexy story or what, but... And the major point is that it works. It works because we know that the Pentagon now keeps secret the number of prisoners that are on hunger strike at Guantanamo Bay. Right. Uh, they started this a couple years ago, um... Well, in 2013, uh, there was this major hunger strike that put Guantanamo back in the news, and you saw President Obama trying to handle all of the interest in what's going to happen to Guantanamo Bay. And uh, so they figured out the way we'll resolve this issue as we'll stop giving data and the Miami Heralds, uh, her, her name's Carol Rosenberg, they had a tally that they were running. Every day you could check how many people were engaged in hunger strikes and who was being force-fed. That was also on there, too. Uh, and the numbers would go up or down. You could see where it was headed. Uh, and at its peak, this hunger strike in 2013 had well over 100 people involved. Um, and now they don't give us any information because... They think that anybody hunger striking must be a terrorist. Yep. Well, terrorism. I mean, terrorism is a, it's it's. It, it, I, I feel terrorized personally <laughs> as an American. I feel personally terrorized by the people who are not eating at Guantanamo. Yeah, I, I, wish, I, think a, I think it's a fair thing to say. I wish they would just eat and accept their indefinite detention. Right. Like I just I feel like it's like I I feel personally like persecuted. Um by these people it's completely indiscriminate too like it's not like they're just there it's yeah but they're they're not eating makes me um scared i'm very scared for myself and my family Um, all right i mean the logic behind that is just (laughs) right uh so so i think i would like to take the last few minutes to uh, just mention and highlight something that was uh, a big deal during the beginning of the week and also uh, a subject of our last podcast, uh, which is uh, what happened with these activists who uh, did this protest at the Bernie Sanders event. Uh, Well, it wasn't his event. It was a Social Security rally. Yeah, it was a celebration of the anniversary of Social Security and Medicare. And uh, we talked about, with Douglas last week as our guest, the Netroots, and then suddenly our podcast became relevant because (laughs) these Black Black Lives Matter activists were protesting on Saturday, and then Sunday, like, everything we were saying was top headline news story on CNN, so... Yeah, yeah. So it, it was fitting. Um, we had no idea, but yeah, that that was fitting, right? Yeah, and uh, and, and I think the thing that I wanted to uh, say was that uh, I was really 
appreciative of the way that their racial justice platform, this this Bernie Sanders racial justice platform, this is the one thing I wanted to say, that, like, if there's anything good that has come out of all of this, it seems like they've gotten a pretty good framing for how to approach these issues of racial justice. I mean, it's pretty strong that... His platform is organized around like the four types of violence towards. I mean, black the, and here's brown the earth. thing: is it's kind of always been his platform. He just didn't have it like written out like that. But like these are things he's talked about. Um, I just look. I I am like I I'm the kind of person that when anything becomes popular, um, I think it should be. I think it should be challenged. Like I think it should be. I think we need to think critically about all things, especially when they become popular. Um, and so people have all kinds of different opinions about how they feel about that action. And if you disagree, like, I think that should be perfectly fine. Like, I think it's like a good to debate these things, like these tactics and strategies and like what's happening in the broader, like, um, you know, the, the, what's happening with the broader movement with Black Lives Matter and what's happening around the Bernie Sanders stuff and what's happening with police issues and how, like, I think these are all things that should be debated, especially as like Black Lives Matter becomes something that is literally like and this isn't a bad thing but it's like in the head it's a literally a headline news story every single day and that's really great you know it's it's bringing these these really really important issues i mean i remember a couple years ago when i would cover issues of police brutality and like no one cared like it just wasn't something that anyone and i'm talking media wise no one cared in the media like it was not an issue the media talked about or cared about except for like you know, in, in very in very um, sensational cases where maybe there was like a public backlash, like with Oscar Grant and stuff. But otherwise, it was a very ignored issue. Now it's like every day, there you know, the news is like really, really hyper focused on this issue, and that's because of you know these uprisings in places like Ferguson and Baltimore and the activism with Black Lives Matter, and just like pushing this, pushing these stories into the mainstream. That's really, really great. Um, however, like I don't think that what what I see happening is like. So with the action last week, it's like the protest was of a Social Security and Medicare celebration um, that Bernie Sanders happened to be speaking at. And again, I just want to point out, I am not like I'm not being an advocate of Bernie Sanders here, not even really like a huge Bernie Sanders fan. I have there's so much like to criticize of Bernie Sanders. However, I just didn't think it really made sense to be protesting like Bernie Sanders. And I didn't really understand why he was being protested. I guess it's another thing. Um and so I think it's okay to, like, talk about that kind of stuff. But it, just, it does seem to me that there is a bit of a chilling effect around daring to discuss or maybe disagree with certain, like, with, with certain tactical decisions or, or with certain protests or just even asking questions. Um, and I don't know if you've noticed it too, Kevin, but, like, it just I, – I find that kind of unsettling that there is this atmosphere of, like, you cannot, you cannot talk about this or dare even discuss it. Like um, – even for people, I mean, did you see this? There was, a, there was some, the, I broke, so I'm like, I, I read Black Agenda Report a lot. And one of the writers there, Bruce Dixon, has been writing about the Black Lives Matter stuff quite a bit. And he's been very, very critical because that's the role he plays, right? As a journalist, like a movement journalist, he's very critical. Um, and he wrote a post recently saying that he's been getting phone calls from people demanding to know why he didn't call the organizers of Black Lives Matter before he dared to criticize them public for their public statements or before he dared to scrutinize their public statements. And so the reason I mention that is because I've noticed this in general um, is this this sort of like this sort of like chilling effect that's taking place where people are like are, are nervous to express their opinions or even to write about things in a factual way when it comes to what's happening around Black Lives Matter. And I find that really disturbing. Yeah, I have to phrase this correctly, but I think you'll understand what I'm saying, which is that these criticisms are are tactical and potentially somewhat based in ideology, but not very. And they're not necessarily... Uh, a, a, it's not a racial criticism it's not motivated like, like the things that i say when i'm criticizing whether or not this sh should be what black lives matter is is putting their energy into that's not coming from some patronizing whiteness 
Yeah, within like respect. Like, like you have to be respectable. It's not about that. No, because I think it was fine for Genesec Gutierrez to disrupt President Obama and talk about the need for trans immigrants to get more rights and uh, have their dignity respected and, and all sorts of things and, and raise awareness about the abuse of trans immigrant detainees. Uh, and, and I have no problem with people disrupting Ray Kelly when he gives speaking events or General Petraeus or, or Professor Petraeus or whatever the fuck you want to give him his label. You know? like if <laughs> Professor he's speak- Petraeus. Whatever. If he's talking and you want to go at him about torture during the Iraq war, like I think it's fine to disrupt people. But we're talking about people running for president. So I, I think like, you know, to go back to the Black Agenda report here, you know, I'll also mention Glenn Ford's column that he put up, uh, which was titled, um, you know, Black Lives Matter and uh, the Democrats, how disruption can lead to collaboration. And just, you know, making the point, I think there's a real question to be asked about, like, what is the objective of protesting these presidential candidates? Like, what, what is this movement trying to get out of it? Because there are two things that I, I consider when I'm asking that question. One, maybe they want candidates to come over to their side and support them. I don't know, though, because Bernie Sanders tried very hard, and there's some people who are still very insistent that, like, it's not good enough. But I just don't know how much more Bernie Sanders can do for them. I mean, he's a senator. He can introduce legislation. But he's not really in any position of power to give them anything immediate to satisfy their demands. He can talk about them on the campaign trail. I suppose he could scold his supporters, but that's also very... I mean, I don't know. Like, If I'm a presidential candidate, I'm not going to chastise the people who I want to vote for me every single day. So I don't know know, if, if that's something that is in his self-interest, and, and I don't know if that's something you can ask him to do. He can he can try to teach them about um, black and civil rights history, and, and that, <laughs> that could be that could be good. I know that's sometimes been recommended um, by people to to whites to do to other white people, but uh, but the other <laughs> but the other thing is that like maybe they. Um, Maybe they don't know what they want to get out of it. Maybe they. Well, haven't. I don't think so. I mean, there's no like. So from what I've noticed, there's no coherent list of demands because, and a lot of it, it. I mean, and I think that I've seen other people say this better than I can. But like, basically, Black Lives Matter is sort of an umbrella for a bunch of different ideologies right now. Yeah. Like people don't. People aren't like you know. There hasn't been like a decided upon like ideological underpinning for Black Lives Matter. Um, so until that happens, until there is, like, some sort of, like, discussion, maybe there has been a discussion around that. Well, they that, put but... out this thing, the statement about being a nonpartisan mo- movement and that they're not going to support any one candidate and uh, so on and so forth. But the thing is that, like, you're, you're going to these events and you're, you're, you're putting on the spectacle and there, there, there is something that should be a desired outcome. So are right. you trying to influence Americans to see your side and you believe people there should get what you're saying. Are you doing it for others in this country and not for the presidential candidates? Or, uh, you know, are, are you hoping to move them to, to talk about your issues? And if you're moving them, if you're trying to move them to talk about your issues, then I guess you have to claim a little bit of victory because, Yeah, they talked about the issue. Yeah, because you've put a lot of pressure on Sanders and Martin O'Malley and Hillary Clinton. Um, Well. Sort of. (laughs) I mean, to what, though? That's another thing is, like, is it to get them to, like, is it to get them to to say that they think black lives matter? And then what? And then to get them to say that they're going to do things for black people? Like, people, especially, like, Hillary Clinton and Martin O'Malley, it's like, what does that even mean? I mean, it just becomes, with them, it just becomes an empty slogan. Which then raises the issue of... You know, if if you're not giving, because because Glenn Ford's pointing to how this almost makes it possible for Democrats to co-opt this movement, which is a real issue in every single election, every four years, the Democratic Party's one of its key roles is to look at a social movement and find a way that they can tap into the energy. It happened in 2012 with the Occupy movement. Mm-hmm. It happened 
four years ago before that with Obama trying to tap into any kind of anti-war energy that had been built up against... Any kind of anti-Republican energy, period. Yeah, and, and that, and feeding off that the, that fear of, of conservatism. Um, and so it's like the one thing that they really do have to be uh, concerned about is is what's going to happen if any of these candidates start laying claim to parts of their movement. And then you have to ask, does this detract from the more specific local efforts that should continue to be engaged in in communities like Ferguson, Baltimore, Detroit, Mm -hmm. Cleveland, L.A., Seattle, Portland, anything that's going on in Denver, Houston, all these cities where, like, we've heard about things that are happening around uh, police violence, around trying to gain more respect for black lives, challenging incarceration, getting prisoners' rights, these important struggles. You know, what are you doing if you're detracting from those struggles by uh, disrupting presidential candidates? And also, um, you know, and I think that this, again, you know, might even go, a part of it might go back to, like, um, to, to some of the ideological, like, um, there's a lack of an ideological underpinning and, and, and also, like, a lack of, like, um, a lack of connecting the police brutality issue to, like, issue of, to issues of economics. I'm not saying people in Black Lives Matter aren't doing that, but obviously the main focus is police brutality, right? Um, so with the Bernie Sanders stuff, what was so strange to me is like Bernie Sanders is this, you know, self-proclaimed socialist. Um, and we can argue, you know, how much of a real socialist he actually is. But, you know, um, for the most part, like he does support like, you know, so- socialist type programs. Right. Um, and he's talking about economics and he's sort of like ha- he's sort of towing this economic populist line. And the people that are rallying behind him. Um, which the media is obviously trying to downplay a lot, I think is a little bit different than the, the excitement around Obama and the, the momentum around Obama. I think the momentum around Bernie Sanders, it's more than just like with Obama, a lot of it was excitement because he's like fresh and new um, and just like had an ability to appeal to everybody. But it was also, like you said, this fear of conservatism after like eight years of George W. Bush. Um, whereas with Bernie Sanders, a lot of the momentum behind him is like socialist momentum, right? Um, and that's exciting. And you know, and there, you could even make the argument that like, is it wise for that all that momentum to be going into Bernie Sanders, who's running as a Democratic Party candidate? You know, and that's a legitimate argument to make right there. Yeah. But because that because it's him who was being protested, it became this like. It became this either or where people were arguing about what was more important, race or economics, and like divorcing the two and divorcing the fact that like, you know, racism is like deep seated in America. And it, it also has like it's like a direct outcome of capitalism. Right. And it's like, why is why are what why why is like policing the way it is? Why is policing so brutal, especially towards poor black communities? Because that's where it's the most brutal is poor black communities. Why is it so militarized there? Why do they behave like an occupying force there? You know? And that goes back to, to the economics, to neoliberal racist economics. Um, and so it's like, I feel like those two things are being divorced, especially when one of the co-founders of Black, of black Lives Matter is like calling, what did she say? Like weirdo economic, um, economic determinism, <laughs> I think she called it. Yeah. Like when she was going up about Bernie Sanders. So like that's the thing that's I mean, and then maybe that speaks to the ideology too, is like is like there are people who are both maybe socialists or Marxists, but also Black Lives Matter people, and they might disagree with like, you know, other more prominent people. And I'm not saying those people are capitalists or anything, but maybe they're just not as radical on the economic issues, right? So like and it's a, it sort of becomes this tug of war between these two issues that I just don't think are independent of one another, mutually exclusive. In fact, they like play into each other and depend on each other, the, the economic inequality and the racism. So anyways, I just think that these are like the conversation we're having right now. I think these are like important conversations to have and things like that should be discussed and debated because you know what, like nothing is ever going to sharpen. You're not going to sharpen your arguments. You're not going to be able to ever figure out like you're, you're not gonna be able to evolve your movement in general doesn't matter what movement it is it can't evolve this was one of the problems with occupy it can't evolve if you're not willing if people aren't willing to have these conversations yeah. um 
And, and what I see, and you know, some people are saying, well, if you're not black, stay out. And okay, fine. But like, I, I see this happening even between like black people who disagree on this is like people who are dissent, like dissent slightly against like what might be happening around Black Lives Matter are, are suddenly like, you know, are, are suddenly white supremacists too. Like how many, <laughs> like how many, I can't tell you how many of like, of of like my black colleagues have been called like white supremacists. Or you're so damaged. Think... You must have been hurt when you were growing up, and this is now what you think. Oh my god! Yeah, telling like telling people that they've been hurt by. Oh, anyway. Well, no, and we need to wrap, but I, I I do want to put an exclamation point on what you're saying, which is that I think generally I don't see these as just being black issues. I think these are important issues that every single American needs to be concerned about. And there's something uh, that I think is very troubling about how there are a, there, there is a very uh, distinct faction of people that seem to claim the right to solving all of these issues that they faced and struggling and, and feeling empowered by being isolated and trying to figure this out themselves. And I, I don't know. I, I reject that because this is happening in my own country to people who are fellow citizens, and it just seems wrong to let them suffer in isolation. Yeah, and it also does, like, let's remember it does impact, I mean, it impacts everybody, people disproportionately, but these are issues that affect, for the most, I mean, they affect, like, a, a larger group of Americans, and I think people realize, like, you know, not all poor people in this country are black, right? Yeah. And they're maybe not. I mean, obviously, like, black people, because of racism, are subjected to um, more vicious, more the most vicious forms. And black people, I should say, and Native Americans, too. Because one thing that gets lost in all this is that Native Americans are actually the uh, the most likely to be, or they, they have the highest rate of being killed by police. Yep. Um, but either way, I mean, these are things that affect, like, the country, like you said, that affect a lot of people. The, the masses of poor people in this country are, it's a much more diverse group than just black people. And I think that, I mean, this kind of goes back to the, like, you know, these, these are arguments that have been happened before in the past. I just think that maybe, like, history isn't, people don't, maybe people are, are, are in general, Americans are ignorant of history, um, especially radical history. Well, that's true. All right. Well, but yeah. We're, well, we're continuing over. Continuing conversation. And uh, we'll pick this up and continue it in future podcasts because we know that this isn't over. There will probably be more disruptions of, of Bernie Sanders rallies. So, yeah. <laughs> so thanks everybody for listening. And we'll be back next week with another episode of the Unauthorized Disclosure Podcast.